Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of illness, body horror, and claustrophobic situations. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Justin's tour of the island had been depressing. He didn't care about the injustices suffered on the land. He just wanted the cool stories. But a geriatric tour guide who whistled every time he spoke didn't exactly agree with him on what counts as a cool story. So he'd wandered off in search of the perfect hashtag pick of the day. Hashtag another day in paradise. Maybe he could make up his own story to share with his friends when he got home. He'd tell them he met a cute girl and they had an adventure together. Maybe he might even meet a girl and they'd have a cute adventure together. It certainly wasn't going to happen in the company of this tour guide. He picked his way between the rock monuments in a sandy cemetery. He had a self-timer on his camera app. He could take a few selfies that didn't look like selfies while he waited for the goth girl of his dreams to come along. He found the most imposing tomb he could. J.B. Laguerre was carved into the top of the pink stone. Probably some super interesting guy with a lot of money and no moral compass. Justin respected the aesthetic of his final resting place. There was no door to the tomb, just a set of bars. Justin propped his phone against a small rock and activated the self-timer. He ran over to the tomb, pressing his back against the bars. A hand closed around his shoulder. He shook it off, telling whoever was behind him that their prank was dumb. The flash of the camera went off. The hand was on his shoulder again. Justin spun around to snap at the prankster, but his words died on the tip of his tongue. J.B. Laguerre was not a dude. She was standing there, pale as a sheet and near translucent. Her fingers were reaching out for him, desperation written across her face. He couldn't move. Her eyes met his as she slashed her bony fingers across his throat. The camera went off again, freezing his image as he fell. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the tomb of Julia Laguerre, a mausoleum on South Carolina's Edisto Island with a truly horrifying history and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. If you sail down the South Carolina coast out of Charleston Harbor, civilization quickly begins to fall away. Green border islands wink at you from the west, and you can see a few private residences peeking through the trees. 
Life is slow and quiet there, and Edisto Island is no exception. Known for the growth of Sea Island cotton in the 18th and 19th century, Edisto Island's population still stands at less than 3,000 people, despite it being within 50 miles of Charleston. The island was effectively abandoned by its plantation owners during the Civil War, and it became a haven for freed slaves in the years after. But before it was reclaimed, Edisto was a small but affluent bastion of rich southern slave owners. One of the most beloved members of Charleston society was 22-year-old Julia Laguerre. She split her time between Charleston and Edisto, and she fell ill during a visit to the island. Her condition deteriorated quickly, and she was buried in the cemetery behind the Presbyterian Church of Edisto Island in 1852. Two years later, her seven-year-old son Hugh passed away. The Laguerres opened Julia's tomb to lay him to rest with his mother. They were met with a sickening sight. The legend goes that there were scratch marks that slid all the way down the mausoleum door, and Julia's corpse lay slumped at the stone threshold. She had been buried alive. It should be no surprise that strange activity surrounds the tomb, as in death, Julie Laguerre is anything but a southern belle. The doctor told Julia there was nothing to be concerned about. While well, this illness felt different than any other malady she'd experienced, he assured her that it was nothing out of the ordinary. His official recommendation had been that she take some time to recuperate at her husband's plantation in Edisto. She loved the island. The serene lapping of the water and the salty air made her feel like a true lady of distinction, the kind that Ms. Austin would have written about. In her head, she wasn't in Charleston. She was in Bath, England. Some well-meaning aunt might pass by to give her the latest gossip about the regimentals or a potential affair brewing. It was a break from reality as much as a break from her normal responsibilities. The plantation was her husband's concern, and she knew better than to get involved with that. She could spend her day in lounging in the sun with a parasol and a good novel. That is, if it weren't for her swollen face. She coughed loudly, and she felt something inside her tear. Flecks of blood speckled the sand. The sea air wasn't restoring her fast enough. She wanted to enjoy her surroundings, to take it all in, but she could barely see through the fog of her sickness. Sweat gathered over her top lip, but she couldn't stop shivering. She stumbled to the house, stopping every few steps to clear her lungs into a handkerchief she'd sewn years ago. Her embroidered initials were soon coated in blood. Julia made it as far as the entrance, before she noticed that one of her legs was turned in, dragging slightly behind her. She desperately tried to force it back into place, but it stayed where it was, knee bent to the side and toes pointing inward. Julia yelled for help, but she was met with blank stares. She tried again, the words coming out in a high-pitched jumble that even she couldn't make sense of. One of their staff, Reggie, eventually heard her screaming. He came to her aid, catching her elbow as she began to fall. She yelped in pain, feeling every nerve in her body light on fire where his hand had touched. 
He put her down immediately, sending her arm down to her side. It dangled loosely. She tried to move it again, but nothing happened. She could only stare at it desperately. Tears of frustration welled in her eyes as she willed her body to work. Reggie stood in silence, trying not to watch. She hated him for being free to move any way he chose. She hated him for witnessing this. After a prolonged silence, she ordered him to carry her inside the house. He complied. As he placed her softly on the bed, her body cried out in protest. The feeling of the sheets against her skin was like sandpaper on an open wound. She screamed at him to get out, tears spilling onto the pillows. He left her alone with her agony-laced thoughts. <coughs> her legs spasmed, sending pulses of electricity up her body. The pain was excruciating. She felt her throat contract and spasm, strangling her cries of anguish. Julia's head jerked to the side. The sound ripped out of her throat, a banshee screeching with unleashed aggression. Her vision dimmed slowly. She fought to stay conscious, to focus on the sky and the birds moving slowly through the air outside the window. The birds flew haphazardly, some crashing into each other in the sky. She blinked, watching them fall farther and farther, landing in the ocean. Their half-bloodied corpses emerged on the shoreline. They crawled, using their broken wings for leverage, away from the beach and towards the house, disappearing from Julia's view. Suddenly, one of the damaged beasts appeared in front of her window. It bashed its head against her window, over and over again. Blobs of red coated the pristine lead glass. She called out for Reggie, but there was something thick in her throat. She tried to force herself to retch, but nothing happened. A viscous film coated her windpipe, and she couldn't push air around it. Her nose started to clog. Her left nostril felt heavy, and there was something covering the airway, something slimy and hard. It spread through her nose, filling her other nostril. Julia tried to suck in air. Panic crept up her spine, causing another spasm. She pushed and pushed and got one clean breath of air. She tried to open her eyes. Her eyelids fluttered briefly, but not enough to move. Julia concentrated her strength, but it was no use. In the darkness, she didn't know if days passed or merely minutes. Everything blurred together. The whispers of the sheets, the call of the birds, the slow, lazy wash of the ocean waves. Her voice was gone. Her body felt stiff, and she lost the capacity for movement. And yet, her mind remained. But she could not lose herself in a dreamless sleep. She was stuck. Eventually, the door swung open. She heard Reggie's soft, even footsteps on the wood floors. He wasn't alone. When the other person finally spoke, she recognized him as her doctor, the same man who had encouraged this trip. She felt his hands on her body, taking measurements and sighing. 
she could feel Reggie's tension, even if she could not see him. He asked in a tremulous voice if she would be all right. There was a long pause. Julie attempted to twitch her fingers or make some small sigh in her throat. The doctor's hands moved towards her pulse. She thought of everything that scared her. Being forgotten. Death. A life stuck in this limbo where she could hear the world, but not be a part of it. She screamed internally, shaking at the invisible cage her body had become. Her heart was too quiet. It would barely offer one small blip of a beat. The doctor sighed again. Reggie's voice shook as he uttered a soft, No. Julia tuned it all out. She had to. There had to be some way to force her body to move. She pulled and she pushed and she tried. Her finger twitched, only a little. All of that work, and it was the only thing she could manage. Would it be enough? The doctor told Reggie that he had the number of a good funeral director and that he would need to bury her right away to avoid transmission of the disease. She could hear the scrap of paper as the doctor passed his calling card over to her butler in order to express his condolences to her husband. Julia tried to make a sound. Her throat was engulfed in molasses, nothing coming out and barely anything going in. The door shut behind the men. Their voices trailed down the hall. She made one small squeak of fear. No one was there to hear it. Julie Laguerre is believed to have suffered from diphtheria, a devastating bacterial disease that would eventually be rendered largely extinct in the United States through the use of vaccines. The illness is typified by difficulty breathing as a result of the bacteria attaching to the lining of the respiratory system, resulting in weakness, sore throat, fever, and swollen glands in the neck. The germs attack respiratory tissues directly, and the necrotic tissues can form a thick gray coating that builds up in the throat and nose, preventing the patient from breathing and swallowing. As diphtheria advances, it can move into the bloodstream, damaging the heart, nerves, and kidneys, eventually causing total organ failure or asphyxiation. It is common for patients to slip into a coma during this kind of blood poisoning, as the body attempts to dedicate all its resources to fighting infection. In an era where signs of life were difficult to detect, the loss of consciousness on its own could mean a death sentence. Up next, Julia joins the dead, though she's very much alive. Now, back to the story. Julie Laguerre was interred in the cemetery beside Edisto Island's Presbyterian Church in 1852. At the time, the church was barely over 20 years old, having been built in 1831. Julia's tomb was a rose-colored stone building, just large enough to house Julia, her husband, and her child when the time came. 
Luckily, or perhaps unluckily, chemical embalming wouldn't become standard until the Civil War. So Julia entered her tomb alive, but immobilized. A living corpse. Hope Laguerre didn't believe in ghost stories. When you died, your soul was collected and judged by the Lord. It didn't linger on earth, waiting to haunt others. That was nothing but a children's story, and she was no longer a child. But when her cousin Julia was buried, Hope had wondered if maybe a soul could leave some sort of message for the living. She looked into her cousin's hollowed eyes and almost saw a glimpse of life behind them, trapped in amber beneath her irises. It was gone the next moment. Hope said her goodbyes, pressing a small bouquet of freesias into Julia's clasped hands. She felt a twitch against her palm. She pulled back, screaming. The doctor diagnosed her with shock. He said Julia's death was most unnatural, and Hope's mind was tormented. Hope disagreed. She didn't feel tormented so much as confused, but the family decided to keep a close eye on her. She tried to read in her room as her aunt sat darning socks in the corner, watching her like a hawk. But her mind kept drifting back to the funeral, that tiniest flutter against her palm. The light in Julia's eyes. Had her hands been warm too? As hard as she tried, Hope couldn't be sure. She asked her aunt what she thought, if the doctor could be wrong. Her aunt's thin lips nearly disappeared as she pressed them together tightly. She didn't speak for so long that Hope thought maybe she hadn't heard her at all. But then she spoke. She told Hope that it was not their place to question men who were far wiser than themselves. They'd all seen the body. It wasn't possible for Julia to still be alive. She was flirting with hysteria and needed to stop. Even visiting the grave would risk disease. Hope nodded her head, but she had heard the slight waver in her aunt's voice. If her aunt might question what happened, maybe there was some truth to what she'd felt. She asked her aunt to accompany her to the mausoleum. Hope claimed that she hadn't had the chance to finish her goodbyes earlier and wouldn't be able to sleep if she didn't return. Her aunt would not be moved. Hope tossed and turned throughout the night. She wanted to visit Julia's tomb. Time alone with her thoughts had convinced her that Julia was, in fact, alive. They needed to unearth her before it was too late. But her uncle had stationed men at her bedroom doors and outside. She was trapped, a prisoner in mourning. She paced the wooden floors, spinning out escape plans in her head. She was considering sneaking out the window in her traveling clothes when she felt a brush of linen against her arm. Hope looked down. Spindly fingers were holding her shirt sleeve. Not holding, clawing. The imprint of the fingers was faint, gliding across her skin. The motion started softly at first, just pulling her skin enough to turn it white. But there was an impatience to the movement as it continued. The fingers dug deeper, pulling up layers of skin. It was a strange pain, not bad enough to warrant letting the guards know. 
but painful enough to bring a few tears to her eyes. Slim rivulets of blood escaped, running down her arm. Hope tried to grab the hand, but her arm went through it. She tried to jerk her arm away, but the grip held firm. She strained against the vice-like grasp to reach the lamp, turning the knob to make the flame grow brighter. Gritting her teeth against the pane, she studied the hand. There was a small ring on the fourth finger. Julia. It couldn't be. Hope hesitantly called her cousin's name. As if in response, the fingers stilled. Her lips trembled as she continued to speak, telling Julia that all she wanted to do was help. She slid a chair up against her bedroom door, assuring Julia that they wouldn't be disturbed. The scratching resumed, harder this time. Julia's nails were turning into talons, pulling chunks of skin out as they dug down to the muscles in Hope's arms. She cried out. She couldn't help it this time. The door started to rattle from the outside. Hope yelled out that she was fine, terrified that Julie would disappear if someone else showed up. But it was too late. The fingers were gone, leaving nothing but a trail of blood behind. The door opened. Two men that Hope didn't know entered. Seeing her injuries, one of them immediately went to fetch the doctor. Hope tried to tell them she was fine. She took a step backwards and swayed on her feet. The guard caught her, bringing her back over to the bed. She murmured Julia's name. The man asked her to repeat herself, but she could no longer concentrate. Everything was going hazy. Her arm was burning. She went to touch it and felt something stop her hand as darkness overtook her. Hope sat up suddenly, screaming her cousin's name. Sunlight filtered in through the windows. Her aunt came to her side as Hope tried to stand. She said Hope had been sleeping for days. Her arm was still sore, wrapped tightly in a cloth bandage. It had been real. Julia needed their help. She begged to go to the tomb. She needed to see Julia. Hope clutched at her aunt's arm, pleading with her to just give her this one bit of peace. With a weary sigh, the aunt relented. Hope dressed in an instant and ran down the path towards the cemetery. Poor Julia had been locked away like some forgotten artifact, a memory out of sight and out of mind. She didn't deserve that. The tomb looked just as it had on the day of Julia's burial, strong and impenetrable. Hope pushed hard against the door and felt it start to open the slightest bit. Through the crack, she saw a flash of red. Hope leveraged her body weight against the door, grunting with the effort. Finally, it slid all the way open. She could hear her aunt coming down the hill to take a look, but she didn't want to waste a second. Sunlight hit the pool of blood near the opening of the door. Stray fragments of stone littered the floor. Hope squinted as she stared at the entrance from the opposite side. She could see long divots and scratches in the rock. But where was her cousin? A muffled scream came from behind her, 
The cry had come from her aunt, who stood trembling with a hand over her mouth. She raised a finger to the back corner of the mausoleum. Julia was slumped on the ground. Her fingernails split in bloody desperation. Skin blistered. Fingers twisted in horrible broken shapes. Hope had been so close. So close to hearing. So close to helping. So close to saving. But she was too late. Julie had died alone in the dark. And now Hope would forever feel that way too. Julie Laguerre's story is more popular with tourists than locals. The staff at the Presbyterian Church confirms that she died between 1851 and 1852 and was interred in the graveyard beside the church, but they can offer no confirmation that she was buried alive. Even Julia's age is in dispute. While historical records suggest that she was 22 at the time of her demise, the story seems to have morphed to frame Julia as a helpless little girl, her small skeleton left in a corner of the tomb. Accidental premature burial was a real fear in the 19th century, so much so that the 19th century saw the invention of several devices meant to warn loved ones that the deceased wasn't actually dead. From glass doors on mausoleums to small bells on strings, there were numerous warning systems, but there seems to be no record of these methods being utilized successfully. Coming up, Julie makes it clear that she wants to be free, but she also wants to be left alone. Now back to the story. The second death of Julie Laguerre was horrifying enough, but when Julia finally began to decompose, things got even stranger. The door to Julie Laguerre's tomb just wouldn't stay sealed. Time and time again, the caretakers of the cemetery would begin their gardening in the morning, only to discover the stone slab lying wide open. Each and every time, they closed it up again. Julia's spirit grew more violent in response. Once, the caretakers returned in the morning to discover the door blown clean off. The stone slab lying in the sand near the cemetery tree line finally getting the message, they left the door off, moving Julia and her son Hugh's bodies beneath the floor of the mausoleum for safekeeping. Time passed. Julia's husband John joined his wife and son in the mausoleum. The open tomb became an obscure local legend, sad but unremarkable, until a group of teenagers arrived and a new macabre tradition began. When his mother asked Ray to explain his friend's behavior, he always said that Dwight had a flair for the dramatic. He was given to dressing outlandishly and blasting psychedelic rock at all hours. His banker father was not a fan. But Ray and his other best friend, Bernie, were. They were more than happy to caravan around the South Carolina countryside with him, seeking out supposed haunts he'd found tiny blurbs on at the library. 
Bernie would bring his 35-millimeter Nikon, and they'd do their best to get images of the graves they could actually read. It wasn't the worst thing for a group of teenage boys to get up to in the summer, but none of their parents approved. They said they were going to the beach and headed off to Edisto Island. Dwight did what he always did when they reached a new town. He went straight to the general store and the library in that order, snapping up some local rumors he could research in the archives. This time, he hit the jackpot. Julia Laguerre. Tragic pale thing. Buried alive, only to live again. Throwing stone doors away from her tomb with the strength of Superman. They had to get a picture. They had to get several pictures. They went during the day first, wanting to get all the details in the best light. It took over an hour to get Bernie anywhere near Laguerre's tomb, as he stopped to capture grave after grave. Intricate 17th century engravings, arches, broken columns, gothic obelisks. He shot roll after roll, muttering that this was a real-life Hammer horror film. When they finally reached the pink stone structure, Dwight practically skipped inside. How could he not? It was just open. Ray stood apart as Dwight tugged Bernie inside to look at the gravestones mounted on the wall. He used his flashlight like a baton, lighting up the interior of the crypt, pointing to this detail, then another. Even though Bernie's flash was already working overtime, they were having a blast. Until they found the scratches on the wall. There was a long pause as the two boys looked at each other, unsure if the game was still fun or not. They called out to Ray, and he stepped forward to check on them. As he stepped through the doorway, his friends leapt from the shadows. Ray jumped, hitting his head on the doorframe. Rubbing his head, Ray moved further inside carefully stepping over the raised stone and altar that indicated the Laguerre's final resting place. Dwight was miming scratching against the stone, his mouth wide open in a mock gothic heroine scream. Bernie's smirk glowed with good humor beneath his camera. Ray generally enjoyed their field trips. He liked history and he liked the outdoors. He loved abandoned buildings. But something about this didn't feel quite right. He asked Bernie and Dwight if they felt anything strange. The boy shrugged. Dwight asked him if he thought the zombie girl was going to jump out at them from below. Ray laughed awkwardly and said he'd seen Dawn of the Dead. If zombie Julia was anywhere, she was headed to the mall. But the unease didn't leave him. Bernie was still shooting Dwight. The stuttering pop of the flash giving the interior of the mausoleum the feeling of a thunderstorm. Suddenly, the boy paused. They had to come back tonight, he insisted. It was the perfect location for some artsy photographs. Dwight was more than on board, but Ray didn't feel so good about the idea. By the time 10 o'clock rolled around, Ray had imbibed plenty of liquid courage along with several pieces of pie. He loaded Bernie's photo equipment into their van and slid into the back seat so Dwight and Bernie could sit up front. Dwight was wearing his white mohair coat. It was the closest thing he could get to a 19th century phantasm on short notice. 
but it did look fabulous. The boys picked their way between the graves in the darkness. Bernie's obsessive cataloging of the cemetery that morning meant that he knew exactly where to go. Back they went, moving between the tombstones like the whistling wind, finally reaching the tree line and the tomb. Julie Laguerre's mausoleum glowed slightly under the flashlight beams, some parts of it still so well-polished that they reflected the beams back at them. Bernie bit his lip, muttered something about that bounce, and went about setting up inside the small stone space. Ray stood around awkwardly just outside the doorway. He never really knew what to do at these particular moments. Dwight and Bernie sometimes called him their bodyguard. If he was their bodyguard, though, he would have wanted to drag them out of there. His unease had returned and grown in the darkness. He was sure they were being watched. Dwight paid Ray's tense body language no mind. He was back to clawing at the walls. Then, Ray heard a whisper. Soft. So soft, it could have been the wind. If he hadn't felt a cold hand press against his back. He asked his friends if they were close to done. Bernie whined only half-chokingly. No one was respecting his process. Dwight admitted he was getting a bit cold in the sea breeze and went to put his jacket back on over Bernie's objections. Glad for the opportunity, Ray quickly moved towards the tomb to help Bernie pack things up. But there was a scraping behind him. Deep, heavy. He turned his flashlight towards the trees, expecting a deer or a turkey or something. But there was nothing. He heard it again. He slowly lowered his flashlight to find a large pink stone slab, the same material as the tomb behind him. It was moving towards him, completely rigid and untouched, yet scraping forward all the same. It wasn't moving fast, more like one of the zombies in a Romero movie. Slow, but determined. Ray called out to Bernie and Dwight to be sure the pie and the gully on a liquor hadn't gone to his head. The other boys walked out of the tomb, gazes fixed on the strange sight. They were just as puzzled as he was. Bernie was mostly frozen, except for his hands, which lifted his camera slowly to his face. Bernie took the picture, and all hell broke loose. The slab left the earth, suddenly hurtling in Dwight's direction. Bernie barely managed to push him out of the way in time, and the two boys tumbled to the ground. Bernie's lens cracked beneath him, but he was too busy checking on Dwight to care. Dwight was cursing a mile a minute, asking the same question over and over. Ray rushed to his friend's side and pulled them up quickly. They watched the pink slab warily, half expecting it to rise again. But it was completely still. Ray told them they needed to go. Bernie shook his head. He needed to go back into the mausoleum. Ray told him he was crazy. Bernie fixed him with a hard look. The car keys were in his bag. The bag was in the mausoleum. 
Dwight cursed some more, but Ray just started walking slowly but surely towards the tomb. The wind whistled through the trees and between the graves. Ray walked carefully, humbly, his head bowed almost instinctively. He lifted his foot to cross the threshold, whispering a prayer and an apology as he stepped forward. The bag was near the entrance. He reached forward and grabbed it, tugging it along the hard floor slowly, slowly. He lifted it up, his head still lowered in deference. He just turned around to go when he heard a hiss from Dwight. His jacket was in there too. Could he get it? The stone tumbled forward to the ground. Dwight shut his mouth and the boys booked it back to the van. Ray looked over his shoulder for just a moment to see if they were being followed. Until the day he died, sober or not, he would swear he saw the slab sliding back towards the woods. The darkness of the tomb watching warily behind it. The membership of the Presbyterian Church of Edisto Island does their best to keep visitors from staging reenactments of Julie Laguerre's tragic demise. But it was hard for the 200-member congregation and five-person staff to keep up with the marauders, so they fitted bars to the front of the Laguerre tomb, seeking a spiritual compromise. Julie appears to have accepted the measure. Julie Laguerre's story could easily belong to early 19th century author Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote of both a tragic noble woman buried alive and a beautiful lady chilled and killed in a kingdom by the sea. A real-life southern gothic. It's no wonder that her disturbing tale has captured the imagination of many tourists in the area who leave Julia handwritten notes, shells, and mason jars of flowers. Dying at 22 from a painful disease like diphtheria is horrific enough, but to suffer so much for so long before finally passing is even more heartbreaking. In theory, Julia shouldn't be left alone. Her husband and son lie beside her, but the Laguerre crypt's refusal to keep its door shut is a sign of a larger restlessness that seems impossible to cleanse or heal. So, if you visit the young Julie Laguerre, best to bring some sort of offering, for she demands attention, whether you want to give it or not. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.
Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>